Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on March 23, 2018. Becky from the Walt Branch Library and Scott from the Bennett Martin Public Library discuss a wide range of fiction and nonfiction books. Well, good morning. It is after 10.30, so since uh, we have a lot of books on our both of our lists here, I guess we should probably get started. Uh, thank you for being at the Bethany Books Talk this morning. Um, you have the, the Scott and Becky Show, or the Becky and Scott Show, 2018 edition, uh, and there's no particular theme beyond things that we've both been reading or watching or listening to lately. Anyway, uh, let's get launched into our stuff. Uh, I will let Becky go first. Okay, I think everybody's seen me before. I work out at Walt Branch Library. I'm one of the supervisors out there. Last year was my 40th anniversary at working at the library. And it was also the 40th high school anniversary, graduation anniversary. And not to think so. that I'm a young whippersnapper, but 37 for me. So, so that means you started yeah. as number five? Yes, I did. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> All right. Well, it is still March, and we just got through with a year of celebrating Nebraska's sesquicentennial. So I do have some Nebraska-related items on my list. The first one I'll talk about is by Michelle DeRusha, um, local author. I believe she does a column or did a column in the paper. Um, and this is called Katharina and Martin Luther. This is a... a double biography. It's talking about Katharina and Martin Luther, um, kind of their journey to finding each other and then somewhat of their life together as husband and wife and then raising their family. But what I loved about seeing the, the cover of it, not only am I a Lutheran, so I was gravitated toward anything about Luther that looked interesting, um, but the subtitle up at the top is The Radical Marriage of a Runaway Nun and a Renegade Monk. And when you stop and think about that, it was exceedingly scandalous. The fact that, the fact that she and several nuns ran away in the middle of the night from their convent and that she was an unmarried woman, single woman, for a couple years after that, that Luther was 20-some years older than her, he didn't want to get married, but he was like, what am I going to do with this woman that I'm responsible for? Because he aided them in their escape from the convent. Um, they had gotten word of his, you know, his um, philosophies and his activities and so forth of, you know, questioning the Catholic system. Um, and when was that? This was in the 1500s. 1500s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, we think people do scandalous things now. It is <laughs> this was a big, big deal. Well, I'm surprised Martin, Martin was that loose to, do the, to help her. Yeah, well, he, he felt convicted, yeah. you know, in his beliefs and stuff. And so basically, she had a couple of guys that would be willing to marry her and whatever. She had been in a, in a convent school since the age of 10, so clearly her parents were not really that attached to her and they wanted the money and so forth that that might provide or wanted the the decrease in expenses of caring for her and then eventually she i think when she was only 16 then she went into the regular convent so i mean her life was very rigid from the get-go um and another radical thing is that people were suggesting, oh, you should marry this guy, you should marry that guy, whatever. He's like, well, I don't want to. I was like, what? You know, I don't, I don't love him. I don't want to. You know, it's like, whoa. Radical idea. I don't want to so, um, But I, I found it quite fascinating. And it's, you know, it's not overly big. Like some historical biographies are just huge. So I, I really got a lot of interesting information out of that. And then the next one I have... I don't know if you guys have heard of Solomon Butcher, the, the Plains photographer in the 1800s and early 1900s. Um, this is called Light on the Prairie, Solomon D. Butcher, photographer of Nebraska's pioneer days. Now, the Butcher photographs are also available online, and it's a wonderful collection that the Nebraska State Historical Society um, made available. And John Carter did a lot of the work on that. But the the 
picture on the cover has become pretty iconic now. It's this family who is posing outside of their Saudi. They have a fresh cut watermelon on a table. They're all dressed in their nice clothes. And behind them is a hill and there's a cow. And it looks like the cow is on the roof of the house, but it's actually on the hill right behind. <laughs> but it's just such a neat picture of that era I and of it was that. Like a dugout, you know, yeah, the house was kind right. Of into yeah, the hill. a lot of them were. Yeah. Didn't someone bring out yeah. Yeah. information on those pictures? Yeah. 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 There are people standing in the window. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. When you digitize something, you can. It'll actually see more than what your eye initially yeah. saw. Yeah. Right. So he pretty much came out west from, I believe it was Illinois or Indiana where his family had been, and they decided they were going to move out and farm and whatever. So they ended up in Custer County and tried to do the whole Homestead Act thing. And he just didn't really have farming abilities, so to speak. <laughs> but he had been interested in photography back where they had lived before and had some gear. And so he just thought, well, why don't I just go around the countryside and document what's going on and you know, people might want to buy the photo, but I, this way I'm kind of documenting this way of life. I'm going to put a book together at some point. So he did this for years and years and years. And then at one point when he was nearly getting done, there was a fire. And all of his notes that he had taken from all these people burned up. Luckily, the photographs were in a different building. So most of those were saved. So, see, he just had to recreate most of the narrative stuff from memory. But he eventually got done with it, and it was um, the pioneer history of Custer County. But one that I love are these two pictures of two women out in the in western Nebraska, and they have their really fancy riding gear. They were tough women. But they were stylish, too. <laughs> they say that, you know, people assume that most of the homesteaders were women. And um, recent research shows that, that more than 30% of them were just women by themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he also was able to document some of the black families that had settled in Nebraska, okay. which is a neat record of that. One um, of the things I think was interesting was that often... The people would bring their prized possessions. Yes. The There's one where they actually brought their yeah. pump organ outside yes. so it would be in the picture. Yes. <laughs> yep, yep. Now, what I found, actually, I don't know what I thought about this, but I thought, well, it sort of makes sense, is on some photos, he would draw in elements to illustrate the scene he was trying to depict. So here... This is a hunter out in the marsh, but he had to draw in the ducks <laughs> to illustrate what was happening. <laughs> he would actually draw them on the negative. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just find stuff like this fascinating nowadays, and especially those Nebraska tie-ins. But it's, you know, not only are you seeing these really neat photographs, you're getting a lot of information in not a really big book. So. This is a nice photo of a black family, and there are four mm -hmm. of them sitting in chairs, and in the fifth chair is the dog with the man sitting behind the, <laughs> standing behind the dog with his hand on the dog. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and so just a really quick tie-in. Next month is National Poetry Month, and I, if I have time, I'll talk about this children's poetry book, but I'm just going to read a really quick Emily Dickinson poem, To Make a Prairie. And you've probably seen this before. To make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee, one clover and a bee, and reverie. The reverie alone will do if bees are few. All right, and my other Nebraska book is a fairly recent one from Roger Welsh, our native folklorist. Well, he actually wasn't born in Nebraska, but he came here a long time ago, and he's been here a long time. Um, written, I don't know if you know, things like Shingling the Fog and things about tall tales and folk tales. This one is called Why I'm an Only Child 
and other slightly naughty Plains folktales. And I thought, what is this? <laughs> so I picked it up, and I've been reading it, and I just finished it. And basically, he's going through what he has come to describe and identify as civil ribaldry. Where civil ribaldry, ribald, ribald stories that you can tell in mixed company and usually get away with. <laughs> because some people will know exactly what the joke is and other people won't even. <laughs> so, and what is interesting, um, and I don't know if peop most people would like this, is that he's basically blending his background, his studies of things, his life in Dannebrog, his life with his um, second wife, Linda, who's about, again, like 18 years, his junior or something. So he's just kind of weaving all these things together as he gives all kinds of examples of this type of humor. So one of the ones I have is um, relating to why he titled the book the way he did. He's talking about um, him and his father, and he has examples of things about his, his own family life and their senses of humor and so forth. So I, he had a chance to say, gee, Dad, why am I an only child? And his father said, because I got a hearing aid. <laughs> because you got a hearing aid? Yep. Uh, why? What? <laughs> See, Raj, when your mother and I were first married, we'd go to bed. And she would say, well, Chris, do you want to just go to sleep or what? Then I'd say, what? <laughs> <laughs> then you were born, and I got a hearing aid. Oh. <laughs> so that's, that's one of the more clean things. There are topics where we get into some fairly graphic details of what's happening. But it's just the, the love that he has for folklore and his small town life and, and, and humor. people's humor. And he's especially um, complimentary to his wife, who basically just pulls uh, sarcastic or funny comments out of thin air. And she's this good Catholic girl that he married. And so she always surprises him with the comments she makes. <laughs> well, uh, since. Becky had some Nebraska things, and I was not going with any theme whatsoever. As it turns out, I have some Nebraska things as well, so I'll, I'll tap into them. I'm not going to get to everything on my list by any means, uh, but uh, they're just the things that I've read or watched or listened to in the last uh, several months, uh, so um, all of which I would recommend in one way or another. Uh, I was doing some um, historical research on Lincoln, Nebraska movie theater history. Um, in other words, uh, going back to the very earliest of the, what were actually um, places where vaudeville shows and stuff would have been done that got converted into movie theaters here in Lincoln. Um, and as part of that, I've been looking for photographic um, examples of some of the very, very earliest movie theaters. Uh, and one of the tools that I was looking in uh, it turns out to be this series of volumes from the Lincoln Journal Star called Lincoln Memories. It has been three volumes thus far, um, about a year, year and a half between each of the volumes. The first volume was culled from, I believe, a variety of private collections and, and Lincoln Journal Star archives. It is titled The Early Years, A Pictorial History, um, and it literally is the very earliest years of Lincoln as a settled community um, until it became the state capital um, under nefarious circumstances. The second volume, uh, they started to tap into private collections of photos. In other words, they went out into the public and started asking, can we uh, look through what photos you have that we know that you have this um, personal collection? And so some of the things in volume two, which was the 40s, 50s, and 60s, start to include things that are from uh, unusual resources. And then the third volume, uh, and they're working on a fourth volume, as I understand it, they basically came to Benham Martin Library downtown, rented our fourth, not rented, booked our fourth floor meeting room, set up scanning equipment, and basically created an all-day event in which they encouraged people to bring in unusual photos of Lincoln history, and they would scan them uh, and get people's permission to use them in volumes of this, this book series. So by the time you get to the third volume, our city in photos from the early years through the 1970s, they're starting to include just ordinary people's photos that 
that illustrate unusual things about Lincoln history. These these books are literally uh, photo collections. So uh, there are captions, there are descriptions of what are in each of the photos, uh, but literally 95% uh, of the content of these books is the photos themselves. And what I one of the things I found interesting in all three volumes is that a lot of photos were kept of the Lincoln Police Department. Um, they would they would over the years they would gather all the police officers on one day and shoot a photo of them, or they would gather all of the motorcycle cops with their motorcycles and shoot a a profile picture of them all standing proud with everything spit and polished and stuff like that. So all three of these volumes have a lot of photos of the police department or the state troopers and that, that kind of thing. Having only moved um, to Lincoln in the 1960s, my parents are sort of transplants. I am a native Lincolnite. Uh, however, I don't have long roots going back um, all the way to, to the, the, the 1800s early 1800s, like me. So, so <laughs> Becky was Becky was jokingly saying, "You're going to talk about Lincoln memories. It's my family that's from here." So, anyway, all three of these volumes are absolutely wonderful treasure troves. I kind of wish in some ways that some of the captions and some of the information about the photos was more detailed uh, because some of them are so fascinating I'd like more information. But in general, if you're looking just to browse Lincoln history, all three of these volumes are definitely worth checking out and all three of these can be checked out if you wish to. So, uh, I think they also made a deck of cards from some They did. Uh, so there are uh, there is a deck of cards with, what, 52 images um, on them. Um, and considering how many hundreds of images there are, that's just a, a drop in the bucket. So, uh, the only other Nebraska thing I've got, to be honest, uh, is, is stretching it. But I will stretch it as far as I can. This book is a very fascinating book, which I stumbled across on the new books display at the um, Bennett Martin. The title is Footnotes from the World's Greatest Bookstores. Two Tales and Lost Moments from Book Buyers, Book Sellers, and Book Lovers. It is by an artist author, Bob Eckstein. He was commissioned to write an article about uh, all the bookstores in New York City uh, for a magazine. He's, he, he does uh, both magazine articles and um, illustrates them with watercolor paintings. Um, and in doing some exploration of, of the history of bookstores, both new and used throughout New York City, um, he, he started to collect stories from people, authors or booksellers or people who uh, collected books at these stores of the interesting memories they had at that particular bookstore and why that bookstore was significant to them. Um, and he did the article and realized that there was a bigger story and so got his permi um, permission from his publisher to do one on bookstores around the entire world, not just simply New York City. And so he traveled to a lot of these places. Um, he interviewed a lot of people um, associated with um, the, the bookstores. Um, and some of the bookstores that he wanted to profile don't even exist anymore. Um, so this book, which has a weird fold-over cover, each uh, bookstore gets a watercolor um, print from him, a little bit of background about the era in which that bookstore existed. If it still exists, it's it's got an open-ended uh, date listed. Um, and then um, on top of the watercolor painting, are the little stories that he gathered from people. Some of them are from f extremely famous people and some are from just or ordinary people that just uh, have an interesting or quirky story. The reason that I include this as a Nebraska one, I, I jokingly told Cinnamon Dockin, the owner of Novel Idea, a bookstore downtown, why isn't your bookstore in this? Well, she, of course, had no control over that, but there is a Nebraska bookstore in here. Uh, oddly enough, unfortunately, because of the time lag between when this guy wrote this book and published it, and now that bookstore really doesn't exist anymore, but the bookstore that is profiled is the Antiquarian Bookstore, which at the time that he put this book out a couple of years ago was in Brownville, Nebraska, and the owner subsequently has passed away. So what the fate of the Antiquarian is, I really don't know. I haven't been able to do any digging. Uh, but it, it does have a Nebraska connection. Of the 75 bookstores he had to limit himself to after the talking to people about hundreds of bookstores, uh, there's a Nebraska connection in this book. And I found it fascinating. Some of the stories in here are are absolutely uh, um, quite uh, quirky. My favorite in there is that uh, there's a um, uh, story from a gal in New York City, I think it was in New York City, maybe it was a, somewhere else on the East Coast bookstore, who was frustratingly trying to put together a book uh, display in her store, and a customer came up and asked if she could help him with something in particular, and she sort of hemmed and hawed and said, well, I'll tell you what, if you can help me get this book display put up, uh, then I'll be happy to help you. And the guy sort of paused and went, sure, um, and spent 
hours putting this book display up with her. Then she uh, stopped and did the research to find his answer, and, and he eventually left the store satisfied. I don't think he actually made a purchase. And her co-worker finally came up to her after all this time and said, you do know who that was. And she, and she says, I have no idea. And she says, David Bowie. So um, just just the fact that there's these little quirky crossovers of, of celebrities. So, so those are my, my Nebraska connection ones. Becky? Um, okay, well, I think I'll jump into my fiction. I've got another one from Frederick Backman, and it's one of his novellas, a short one, called The Deal of a Lifetime. Just like with his other books that I've read so far, it's it kind of takes you on an emotional journey. Um, and this one is a little bit of a fantasy element in it. It pretty much deals with of a man looking back over his uh, relationship or lack thereof with his son, kind of spurred on by the fact that he's in the hospital uh, with cancer and he meets a little girl who also has cancer. So they kind of form a strange little friendship there. But then he's also reflecting back on, you know, what he could have done, what he should have done um, over his time. And if there is still hope for him to make it right, so to speak. So, and it's like I say, it's a little book, but it's got kind of a powerful punch to it. Um, and if you like, you know, A Man Called Uva or whatever, um, this is the same author. And then the next one I have, and I actually have a copy of this one, is called Rise and Shine Benedict Stone. The first thing that caught my eye, just because I'm my mind kind of works that way, was Benedict. My mother grew up near the town of Benedict in the town of Benedict, Nebraska. So that caught my eye. And then when I read the description of what it was about, it's about a man who runs a jewelry shop and makes jewelry and works with gems. And so Scott and I have gotten sort of an increased interest in that the last few years. Um, but this is basically set in an English, a little English village, um, and Benedict Stone uh, was only 18 years old when his parents were killed in a natural disaster, and he had a younger brother that he had to take care of. They had a falling out. Um, and he hasn't seen him for years and years. He moved across the sea to North America. And we, uh, when we come into the book, we find Benedict, who loves his sweets, so he's got a little bit of a weight problem. His wife has just moved out, and he thought they had a perfect relationship, so he's kind of distressed about that. Sales at the store are just sort of lackluster. He just goes in, and he's not finding joy in his work anymore. And then one evening, there's a knock at the door late, and there's this young teenage girl outside the door who claims that she's his niece. And he's like, what? I didn't know any of this. So we kind of take off from there, and she, uh, for some reason, decides that she's going to help him win his wife back. So there's that whole plot line. There's the plot line of her journey as to, well, why are you, you know, you're saying that your dad knows what you're doing, that you're doing this jaunt across Europe all by yourself. So there's a few little things, you know, going on that aren't really maybe what they seem to be. Um, but it's, you know, if you like a charming little tale of, you know, characters and place and whatever, this would be a good read, I think. So that's being passed around. And then I have a young adult novel. And I just kind of like the title of it. I'm like, well, now what's this about? Optimists die first. <laughs> so this is a, the heroine of this is a teenage girl who has suffered quite a tragedy in her family. And her existing sort of like OCD and neuroses kind of just got completely amplified after this. So she collects clippings about bizarre freak accidents in which people die. <laughs> she makes sure she walks across the street from construction sites. She, you know, she's kind of just very phobic about many things, and she's going to counseling through her school. And she uh, has, there's a group of kids all in the, the counseling group, and they all kind of have their own problems. 
and um, a new boy comes into the group and they kind of strike up an attraction quite an attraction and he likes to be a little bit mysterious about it um, and then things go along pretty well and then things go kind of sideways so you know we were all teenagers once so I think it addresses some of those issues well but it's also kind of a journey of how do you cope with a tragedy or a trauma especially when there's guilt involved and you know kind of work through that and and be able to live the rest of your life in a more normal way so that is optimists die first by susan nielsen and then the last um, fiction i have today is um, the dynamite room and I think it just caught my eye because of the juxtaposition of the photo that's being used and the title of the book. It's just like a couple of kids practicing dancing and they're wearing clothes from like what you would think would be the 40s or 50s. It's really kind of a, again, I'll say a little bit traumatic. It's again set in England and it's about, uh, I believe she's a 12 year old girl who has been sent off to an evacuation camp during World War II and doesn't like it there, is homesick, and runs away from the camp and makes her way all the way back to her house, which is deserted. The whole village is deserted, pretty much. And she's only there maybe a half a day before someone else comes into the house. And so then from there, it's just kind of like you're just kind of on the edge of your seat as to what's happening and what, what is really going on. And I don't want to give too much away, but um, she finds out that this person posing as an Englishman is really a German spy. Um, and there are some other things in the background, and we, we are kind of flashing back from the present and their situation in this house together where they have to try to keep out of sight because they don't know who's out in the countryside. And his flashbacks of how he came to this point of being on this mission. So I found it quite, quite fascinating. And I wouldn't say it's a happy book, but it's certainly explores a lot of things about wartime and you know again how are you dealing with a tragedy or a trauma or something you have no control over and you're trying to regain some control so that's the dynamite room by jason hewitt thank you all right um as many of you know i am the organizer of the library's just desserts mystery book group which is having its march meeting next thursday at south branch library you're welcome to join us um and therefore i read a lot of mysteries in preparation for that group and the last three that i read for just desserts uh, I enjoyed all of them in their own individual way. They're completely different in style, uh, but I figure I will just share the three uh, mysteries that I have here um, in a, a grouping. In January, we read uh, a Michael Crichton title, or not Michael Crichton, Michael Connolly title, The Late Show. Uh, he is best known for the Harry Bosch mystery series. If you've read any of those, uh, you know that that's up into the 20-some volumes. Um, he also has a series featuring... Um, Harry Bosch's uh, relative, who is a attorney, the Lincoln Lawyer um, series. Connolly has basically stated that as he's getting older uh, and his characters are getting older, Bosch can't really be a cop anymore, and, and Connolly really wanted to continue telling cop stories, so he needed to create a newer, younger character that he could continue telling police stories with. And so in The Late Show, he introduces Detective Renee Ballard, a young female cop who uh, basically tried to press a sexual harassment case against a superior officer and, and ended up sort of being penalized for it and has been demoted to the Hollywood division, late night division. Uh, basically, she's the one that comes on duty at like 11 o'clock at night and works until the early part of the morning. And um, in The Late Show, the first volume, she takes on several different cases or starts working the elements of several different cases, which surprisingly end up sort of crossing over with each other. She's a fascinating young character, uh, Polynesian background, lives 
pretty much just on the beach, doesn't have a permanent residence. Just uh, when she's done with her um, her um, duty shift, uh, she gets her dog from a friend who's keeping it uh, and sets up a pup tent um, on the beach, goes surfing, and the dog guards her during the, um, the day when she's sleeping. Uh, she's a, a really well-defined character. Um, I enjoyed this one very much, and the vast majority of our Just Desserts uh, reading group also did, too. <laughs> Oftentimes we will pick authors that there's a diversity of opinion about some people hate them some people like them but in general Connolly seems to be an author that pretty much everybody in our group uh, likes to some degree or another we were also curious as to what was going to happen uh, in interviews. People kept asking Connolly, so how soon is it going to be before we get a crossover between Harry Bosch or, or the Lincoln lawyer and this new Renee Ballard? Um, and, and he was coy and said, well, they're all in the same storytelling universe. It could happen. Well, uh, the next volume in this series, which I don't have the title of here, unfortunately, uh, has been announced uh, as coming out, I believe it's this summer. Um, and it's a direct crossover between Harry Bosch and Renee Ballard. I mean, it's literally... This, the next volume in this series, but it's also the next volume in the Bosch series as well, so people are not going to have to wait long for that. Now, I will say, I listened to this one as a book on CD, which um, is currently all copies are checked out, and I really enjoyed the book on CD. The narrator of that really did a good job with that, but even if you just want the, the standard prose version, uh, it um, is a good novel. In February... Uh, we had a completely different experience for Just Desserts. Uh, we picked an author that there was a huge diversity of opinion about. I ended up absolutely loving the first volume in, in this particular series, and there were other members of the group that absolutely detested it and, and, and hated it beyond, beyond words. Uh, we, in this particular month, instead of all of us reading the same individual book, we picked a series, and people could read whatever volume they wanted in that series, because the library only owned uh, anywhere from one to four copies of each of the volumes in the series. The series uh, was by Lindsay Davis, a British author, and featured Marcus Didius Falco. Uh, it is a historical mystery series. Marcus Didius Falco is the equivalent of a private eye in ancient Rome. And they are fun. Um, yeah, indeed. Uh, they, they are a hoot to read, but they are an acquired taste. Uh, there are just some people who got 20 pages in and detested it. Um, I personally loved the character of Marcus Didius Falco, and after 20 volumes, she does tie up the series. However, she has a spin-off series featuring Marcus Didius Falco's adopted daughter, who basically starts the same kind of business that her dad did, which is as an informer, a Republican informer, uh, which is essentially a private investigator. But uh, the, in the series of 20 volumes that Davis has told, uh, she's able to tell a variety of different styles. The, this first one is kind of like a, a noirish P.I. story, but she's also told serial killer stories, she told courtroom drama stories, she's, she's told uh, thrillers. Uh, in 20 volumes, she intentionally played around with the concept of the mystery novel and how she could tell different types of tales. Uh, anyway, Silver Pigs is the very first volume in the series. is an excellent introduction to the character. If you're willing to try a historical mystery with a huge sense of humor, but that is loaded with great historical research... Yes. Uh, now, she did admit in, in an introduction to the paperback copy that she had some things wrong, but she said that's the nice thing about paperback reprints is they can put uh, introductions saying, I screwed up, this is what um, is wrong about this book, but we left the book as it was. So, anyway, Silver Pigs, first volume in Lindsay Davis' series. And last but not least, this month, next, next week, we will be discussing Felix Francis's Triple Crown. Felix Francis being Dick Francis, legendary British mystery author. Um, his son, who has continued the business. For several books, they worked together. Felix was the researcher for a lot of Dick Francis's horse racing mysteries, and as toward the end of Dick's life, Felix pretty much took over the writing of them, and since Dick passed, uh, he has continued uh, to write under just simply his own name. And this Triple Crown, most of the horse racing books that Francis writes are set in Britain. He is a British author, and it deals with the British racing system. Triple Crown, as the title would seem to indicate, is an American set one in which a, a British horse racing authority um, agent um, is 
asked to come over and join a special task force in the U.S. Uh, to uncover who might be a mole in a, a U.S. intelligence um, group uh, dealing with horse racing. And after an incident at the first race in the Triple Crown, which is the Kentucky Derby, this guy then goes undercover to investigate and see if he can uh, uncover the corruption that may be leading to an illicit Triple Crown winner in the U.S. Uh, I found this one to be absolutely fascinating and enjoyable. It's a fast-paced thriller mystery. Um, I also listened to this one as an audiobook, um, and the one complaint I would have about the audiobook, um, it does certainly give a British tone to the voice, because it's a British actor who's narrating it. However, there are several Hispanic characters in the, in the novel, um, working as, like, racetrack attendants and stuff like that, and he gives them, like, Italian accents. So, it's very jarring to hear him talking about this young uh, Hispanic woman, and she sounds like she stepped out of an Italian western or something. So, um, Anyway, um, that is also available for checkout as well. So. I'm going to go through my children's stuff real quick here. The one I was starting with um, was the Book of Nature Poetry from, I believe it's from National, yeah, National Ge- Geographic. And so it's poems designed for kids, but some of them are for an older kid, I would say. But what's nice about it is it has these beautiful photos to go with the poems. So it's just really, you know, you can do a little bit at a time, and especially if you have a younger child or grandchild that you kind of want to introduce them to poetry. I think this might be a nice way to do it, you know, kind of not as boring as just printed words. <laughs> and then I've got another nonfiction book, and this is actually a book series that we've got at the library called Enchantment of the World. And I thought the cover was just beautiful, caught my eye. And I picked Denmark because I believe part of my mother's family is from there. And so I just kind of read up on Denmark, found out all kinds of little facts and figures. Um, And then um, I have kind of a fun one called Valensteins. So it's a group of monsters that are doing things that aren't quite so monstery. Um, Fran, they call him, is starting to make paper valentines and all the other, the mummy and the vampire, whatever. What are you doing? What is that? But he has a sweetheart that he wants to give it to. But along the way, there's, and for some reason, there's a little bunny rabbit with this group. <laughs> And he's, he says, yeah, well, what, what is this about? It's, oh, it's about love. He loves somebody. Love? Ew, that's mushy. I mean, I remember as a little kid, oh, people are kissing and all that mush? Yeah. <laughs> so I always like to, to read kids' books, you know, especially if they have some kind of a humorous element to them. They're fun. And then I have, I have started doing a monthly story time at um, one of the Bryan Hospital daycares, we had an employee who was out on maternity leave and they needed somebody to go um, there and do it. And I was like, I've never ever done a story time in my whole library career. I'm like, hey, why not? So I've done about three of them so far. And these are toddlers and preschoolers. And one that I picked, I was doing Sun, Moon and Stars as a theme. And I found this really cool one, what the sun sees, what the moon sees. It's a backwards two-way book. And most of the kids, when I got to the end of the sun and flipped it over like, what? 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 I said, you've never seen a two-way book, have you? (laughs) So that in itself was like, that's cool. And then this one I found, and Scott then... I showed it to Scott, and it's a really nice little photo-illustrated book called Love You When from a lady who basically is an artist who does rock painting. And then she's been doing a couple of kids' books where she has themes, um, colors, and it's really pretty neat. She found all, you know, and she groups these rocks, and she makes these really artistic photos. And what I have that, if anybody's interested, she's also done a rock painting how-to book. So that might be a fun thing either for you or to do with your 
child or grandchild or niece or nephew. She also has a website. Uh, her name is Linda Kranz, K-R-A-N-Z. She has a website with examples of her art, um, and she also has a couple of other books out there which the library doesn't have. Uh, the one thing I liked about this particular one, because it was also on my list, is... We, we love hearts. Uh, Becky has collected hearts when they appear in nature in some weird capacity. Well, you took Every, of all the hearts. Well, yeah, we, we yes, had all the heart statues did. in Lincoln, too. That was a, a challenge for us. Well, but what we collect... Go ahead. Even more than that, several years ago, the, the inspiration came to me to go to San Francisco because I kept seeing heart images like in my food and different things. And I thought, this is weird. And then I came across an article about heart sculptures in San Francisco. And I thought, There's, somebody's trying to tell me something. So that was the first time we went out to San Francisco, and we loved it. The, to finish my comment on the book, in addition to the painted rocks that she does, she managed to collect over the course of several years lots of heart-shaped rocks that are just naturally heart-shaped that she didn't like carve to look that way, and those are represented throughout this book. Now, Becky's copy wasn't available for checkout, but this one is if you'd like to take a look at it. It's a, a charming little read that you can browse through in just a few minutes. Okay, and I, I'm going to really quickly finish up my nonfiction. I have a couple of neat fun books. This one, and I think we only have one or two copies of this one. Um, Fashion, the Evolution of Style. And the cover caught my eye of these ladies in their bathing suits walking away from us. Um, and it was actually on, the, on a boardwalk in Britain. This is a compilation from an archive, a library archive of photos in England but it spans like from the middle 1800s up through like the 1980s. But they're just basically using this collection of fashion-related photos to talk about styles and eras and work in, you know, contemporary history and culture along with what they're doing. And this, it's everything from sailor suits. Everybody probably remembers a sailor suit. Yeah. To swimsuits, so you know you have all kind, you know, what bikinis, onesies, whatever. So it's just a really fun little thing to browse through. And then another one that, and I actually found this at the bookstore, and we do have one copy, one or two copies of this. I believe they're checked out. Um, the Secret Lives of Color, and what this does is the author selects a range of specific colors like um, dye colors or ink colors printing colors whatever painting colors and gives you a two-page um, kind of a story about them so like for instance I picked violet because my mother's name was violet and it's talking about what what they chose to highlight on this was the use of that color in impressionist painting and how that kind of was Again, sort of a radical thing to use, you know, instead of putting, making a shadow in a landscape painting gray or black or whatever, it was violet. And all these art critics are like, what are you doing? That's not normal. <laughs> so it's just kind of a really neat way of highlighting. And you get kind of unusual, you know, you may have heard the word or know what it is, but heliotrope. Would you just know offhand what color heliotrope was? <laughs> so that's it's a really cool little book um, just kind of fun again to, to browse through in bits as you have time and then I have two more really quick I have one called A Square Meal A Culinary History of the Great Depression and this gives you all kinds of information including pre-depression era where Soup kitchens and bread lines existed in New York City way before the Depression. And kind of how these were designed to help people, but how in a lot of ways they did bad things. Bad things resulted. And there was even a huge protest, you know, civil rights protests, the Million Man March, things like that. They're not a new concept because there were all these, like, veterans... Um, who were homeless or in destitute means who 
went to Washington, D.C. and camped out for months and months trying to get help and relief. And what it also covers is a lot of home economics information and how, you know, people tried to, especially in the days of radio and whatever, tried to be, you know, helpful hints for the farm wife or the housewife or whatever. So it's a really neat book. There's a lot of history in there. So if you, you know, you might want to do it in short bursts if you're not huge into history. And then my last nonfiction is if you recognize Cindy Williams from the sitcom Laverne and Shirley. She's also been in some major, major movies, American Graffiti, uh, kind of where George Lucas got his start. So she's acted with people who are very famous. Her TV show was very successful. But this little book about her own life is just kind of refreshing because she's very down to earth. She's very awestruck by other celebrities. She's a normal person. <laughs> and she's got all these neat little stories of interactions and intersections with people. She's got a really nice thing about being able to perform with Gene Kelly, who's one of my favorite, favorite celebrities ever, and describing how he was nice to her and told her about how he thought their voice techniques were similar in things. One of the other interesting things is she was a waitress for a long time before she really got her career going and um, was at, I don't know if it was like the Whiskey-A-Go-Go or somewhere where rock rock and roll people would go and hang out and her first night there Jim Morrison of the Doors gave her a very very hard time basically pranking her and she didn't figure this out until like the next day that because he kept saying he wanted a such-and-so drink and the bartender said no we don't serve that and she, so she was running back and forth and they all knew it was a setup but I just found it really a fun read <laughs> All right, here's some some random things from me. First, uh, I did a book talk um, several years ago now uh, called Creature Comforts, which was all about animal-human relationships and things like Wesley the Owl and things like that, where it was people living with animals. Uh, there was also one about a buffalo in the house uh, where somebody had raised a buffalo from birth, um, and the buffalo got so used to being in the house that even when they tried to keep it outside, it tried to force its way in the house. Um, here's one that would easily go on to that list. Uh, I found this on the New Books display at Benham Martin recently and en enjoyed it very much. It's Penguin the Magpie, the odd little bird who saved a family by Cameron Bloom and Bradley Grieve. Uh, Cameron Bloom is a photojournalist um, and a photo artist uh, who basically takes uh, photos to illustrate other people's works normally. Uh, he married his... Uh, college sweetheart, shall we say. Uh, they had three sons, and they tried to maintain a lifestyle that was adventuresome. They didn't want to get trapped with just a television. They wanted to go on adventures. And so at one point, they as a family went to Thailand, and instead of just simply visiting all the tourist traps, they went off into the back country and ended up in this small community uh, where they were having the time of their lives, having a wonderful experience, and the wife leans up against a hotel's uh, balustrade um, and it collapses and she falls 20 feet onto a bunch of equipment and shatters her spine and cracks open her skull uh, and her life is forever changed from that point. They saved her but uh, she was in excruciating pain uh, and she was partially paralyzed from the um, basically the chest on down um, and she lost a lot of her will to live she lost uh, a lot of her uh, enjoyment in, in what her life had available to her um, and then when they got back to Australia which is where they lived shortly after they returned the, one of their sons found a baby magpie that had been blown out of a nest, the mother had abandoned it and they didn't want to just let it die on the, on the parking lot of a grocery store so they took it home and decided that they would raise it until it could get back out into the wild itself and so they raised it kind of like a pet but trying to encourage it to be outside and the bird ultimately decided it didn't like being outside it wanted to be inside the house with them and so Bloom illustrates the entire story of rehabilitating this bird um, 
and it turns into a rehabilitation of his wife because she identifies with this broken bird. She becomes the primary caretaker, and so it sort of becomes a tandem story of how this bird helped heal this family. Uh, Sam Bloom, the wife, uh, ultimately uh, got into kayaking because she still had enough upper, upper body capabilities that she could do a kayak, and she's now on the Paralympic kayak team for Australia for the 2020 Olympics. Um, so it's a wonderful story, um, and it is truly illustrated with little snippets of their lives next to a page with the bird and how it interacts with them. Um, wonderful photojournalism and also a touching story. So. And a happy ending. Well, to a certain extent. She's yeah. still in extreme pain, yeah. but she's persevered. So. Yeah. Really quickly, let me hit a couple of things here. Uh, I, I, as you well know from past experiences with me, I am a science fiction fan, so I have three quick sci-fi things, and then we'll finish off with a joint experience that Becky and I had. First... Uh, this is a graphic novel by William Gibson, who won the Hugo and Nebula Award, both of the critical awards in the science fiction field for Neuromancer back in the 1980s. He worked with a, a group of um, artists to create an alternate history World War II story um, called Archangel, in which our reality is the result in the story um, that he's telling. Our reality is the result of a time travel having come back from a dystopian future uh, and changed something to create our reality so that his reality wouldn't exist. And so this is set partially in a, a future where everything has fallen apart and partially in a World War II where time travelers have come back to prevent something from happening that is going to create that other history. Uh, the art is quite intriguing. It's a fast-paced adventure novel with lots of battle scenes and personal fights um, and some interesting science fiction concepts with regards to uh, how easy would it be to alter history with just a simple act. Uh, and you get that all the time with what if Kennedy hadn't been assassinated? What if Lincoln hadn't been assassinated? What if the South won the Civil War? All those kinds of little things. But what if it was so simple that one little action could have been the catalyst for all of that? Uh, that's a fascinating graphic novel if you like that format. Um, the one I am reading right now is by Stephen Baxter. It is The Massacre of Mankind. It is an official authorized sequel to H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds, uh, which was published in the 1890s. And this is literally 14 years after the events of that original Wells novel. Basically, it follows uh, a female photojournalist uh, who is a relative of the anonymous narrator of the original Wells novel, uh, who now, 14 years later, stumbles across the fact that a second invasion is about to begin, and it turns out that that first invasion was just kind of a scouting mission to see how easy it would be to take over our planet. Um, so it is fascinating in that Baxter, the author tried to recapture the writing style and tone of the original novel. He didn't just want to write something with a modern tone. He writes this in the same style that Wells wrote his, which was kind of a fascinating, vaguely stilted style, but still um, interesting to read. Um, it's just that he had, Baxter is a scientist and a science writer and knows exactly what he's talking about when he pr puts all these ideas forth, whereas Wells was not a science um, aficionado. He was basically a political aficionado, so he was trying to write polemics talking about uh, the, the current political systems in England. This is much more of a science-based thing, uh, but it is a, a really well-done sequel a hundred years after the fact. A sequel to the book as opposed to... A sequel to the book. The, 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 the Orson Welles radio show, famous as it is, changes things completely from an English setting to a, a, a U.S. setting and also changes a number of the other things. And uh, the feature film, of course, uh, is completely different. So there are elements that you'll see in both of those um, in this book, but not really. Last but not least. Mm -hmm. Yes? No, I want to just really quick cover okay. my other two we'll categories. Okay. These are some examples of TV shows and movies I've enjoyed the last couple of years. Guardians of the Galaxy movies. There's two of those now. They're very fun. The volume two that just came out last year um, features Kurt Russell, one of my favorite actors, and I think he does a really great job in the part. But if you like quirky characters, adventure, science fiction, space, whatever... You might like these. And then um, I think we may have talked about this before, the, a series of 
a series itself and then a series of movies put out by the Hallmark Channel, Signed, Sealed, Delivered, which is about a group of people that work in a dead letter office and kind of how they reunite people and things and memories and whatever. It's from the same producers that did Touched by an Angel. So we really enjoy those. And then I do. I have a couple of uh, magazines listed on my list. One thing that I caught my eye was this article in Entertainment Weekly about the 90th anniversary of the Oscars. So what was nice is that they're just kind of revisiting various people and events in that history of the award. So here's a very young Haley Mills. Um, they also have a nice article about Sidney Poitier who in one year appeared in three tremendous movies and was not nominated that year. <laughs> so that's always a kind of a fun thing to look at the Entertainment World magazines. And the other thing I have on there, which um, we are no longer subscribing to, but is still available, I believe, is called Mental Floss. And it's a very just a fun, fun compendium of all kinds of facts and things that you thought you knew, but you didn't really know the whole story. Um, top ten lists and all different things. So if you have a chance to ever look at an issue of that, I would recommend that. And with that, thank you very much. We've run well, out of time. Well, just finish with the tribbles. We're so, well, all right. Just finish. You all right, really tribble. quick, really quickly. All right, really quickly then, <laughs> the connected things that I had here. What was it? The first weekend in March, uh, the Beatrice, or I'm sorry, Gage County uh, Film History, history um, Organization put on an annual uh, film festival. This year's film festival, they, they do it every year to pay tribute to famous people in the film and TV industry who came from Gage County. Uh, they've done it for various actors in the past. Robert Taylor. Robert Taylor, as an example. Um, they are hoping, but it may not happen, we'll see, uh, to do next year um, Harold, Harold Lloyd, who actually came from yeah. Gage County. Uh, however, what they had discovered, unbeknownst to them within the last couple of years, was that a producer and writer for television uh, named Gene Kuhn uh, came from Gage County. Uh, Gene Kuhn is the second Gene when you think of Star Trek. Star Trek was created by Gene Roddenberry, um, and for the first half of the first season, he was the executive producer um, and was running himself ragged and ultimately decided he needed to bring on somebody who um, could, could, do could day -day. basically run the day-to-day -day show and the person he brought on was a producer named Gene Kuhn who had originally come from Beatrice, essentially. Uh, Gene Kuhn then went on to write um, a good dozen episodes of Star Trek, and as a special guest for this fest film festival that they had, they brought in... David Gerald, a Hugo and Nebula winning science fiction author who originally got his break into the science fiction writing biz by writing the episode of Star Trek called The Trouble with Tribbles. Uh -huh. And he basically, in, to a large degree, credits Gene Kuhn with helping to launch his career by buying that script and giving him the experience mentoring of work, him. mentoring him, working on the set, allowing him to be on the set of the show and observe every step of the process, study the actors on previous episodes so he could get their vocal patterns proper for his writing of his own script, that kind of thing. Um, anyway, so he was the special guest guest in Beatrice, um, and amongst the things that he was selling, uh, he had a whole table full, a of, whole tribbles. Table full of tribbles <laughs> that he was selling. It is. And kids were buying them and going and sitting in the audience and not turning them off while he was trying to speak. <laughs> anyway, I will tie this into literature, however, by saying... But something that I've been reading in the last few weeks uh, has been uh, a series of graphic novels. Back in the 70s, Star Trek put out a number of what they called photo novels, F-O-T-O-N-O-V-E-Ls. And so I got David Gerald to sign the photo novel based on his episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. What this does is it takes literally still photos from the episode and then puts captions and word balloons above the characters' heads and retells the stories. Well, that's all well and good. There were about 13 of those published in the 1970s based on 13 different episodes. In recent months, or recent years, I should say, since they started in 2014, uh, a famous comic book artist has started to do that 
but to tell all new stories. He has taken images from the 79 original classic Trek episodes and has recreated not just those stories, but has told all new stories by finding still images of the characters in various poses and saying stuff, and has completely created an entire new season of Star Trek in graphic novel form. Um, he's had to monkey around and use computer manipulation to create new backgrounds for where the characters were standing um, and introduce other characters played by other actors and stuff like that. But it's absolutely fascinating. He's got three more issues to publish before his season of Star Trek is done, but the library does actually have these, not in comic book form, but if you use Hoopla, our digital app, uh, you can actually find individual copies of these, and also they've been compiled into like uh, six of them in, in one package so you can get six stories in, in one digital download. Uh, it's absolutely marvelously well done and the writer, John Byrne, uh, really knows the style of how those characters were portrayed in the show. He's got the dialogue and the, the vocal speech patterns down pat on these characters. So I've, I've purchased the first six volumes out of 24 that have been published so far uh, and I highly encourage you to check them out on the digital download service Hoopla if you would like. Also they're available through places like Trade to Tape, our local comic book store, that kind of thing. So with that, I think we have way run over our time, but thank you for your indulgence, and we will see you again at some future point. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcast by searching for Lincoln City Libraries Podcasts on Facebook. Thank mm-hmm. you.